Hey, if you have a Bible, let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. We'd love to give you a copy if you don't own one. Um, The easiest way to find the book of John is to either use the the table of contents in the front of the Bible or flip all the way to the back to the book of Revelation and then move forward about four books. Uh, That's how I have to do it at least because I can never find it. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, today we begin the first of a four-week series in this book entitled, That You May Know. Um, Around the years of 80 to 90 AD, all but one of the eyewitness apostles of Jesus had been killed for preaching the gospel. All but the beloved Apostle John. And it was during this time, around 80 to 90 AD, that false gospels and distortions of Jesus' teachings were beginning to infiltrate Christian churches everywhere. And the churches in and around the big city of Ephesus were no exception. It was only a few decades earlier that the churches in Galatia just to the west of Ephesus, we're being faced with the false teaching that, <clears throat> excuse me, I got to cough for a second. Yes, amen. <laughs> it was only a few decades earlier that, uh, that the churches in Galatia were being infiltrated with this false notion that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough for the forgiveness of sin, that in addition to trusting Jesus' atoning death, sinners also needed to earn forgiveness with good works. But now, in 80 to 90 AD, the churches in Ephesus were being taught that Jesus wasn't even the Christ. He wasn't even God incarnate, and his death on the cross wasn't even necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Throughout history, the devil has loved to hinder the accuracy of Christian doctrine. He doesn't need us to become atheists. He just needs to rattle our confidence in Jesus' ability to save. So as the Christians in Ephesus began to entertain these false notions about Jesus, the very foundation of their faith was chipping away. They were becoming unsure of what to even believe about Jesus, they were becoming unsure uh, of where they even stood with God. Had they really been forgiven from their sin and, and saved? Had they really received eternal life? Was there even a way to know for sure? I mean, maybe some of us Christians this morning can, can relate to these questions. You know, believer, do you know that you know, that you know, that you know where you stand with God? Do you know if you've truly been forgiven and saved from sin and death? Do you know that you actually possess real, eternal, everlasting life? The whole of the Christian life, the whole of the Christian life hinges on knowing where we stand with God, on being certain of our forgiveness, on being confident in our future hope. Without this assurance, the very foundation of our faith 
will chip away. When I first began dating my wife, Lindsay, she was 16, I was 17. We were high school sweethearts. I was crazy about her. I still am. I should put that on the record. I still am. But I was also constantly plagued with worry concerning our relationship. I was constantly wondering if she really liked me. Constantly wondering if she really accepted me. Constantly trying to impress her, to keep her interested in me by doing all of the right things. But no matter what I did, and maybe you can relate to this in some of your relationships, no matter what I did, no matter how much I did it, I was always unsure about my standing with her. It's not because she was making me feel that way, mind you. It was me. But I was always unsure of where I stood with her, always unsure if I had secured my spot in her life. And because of this, instead of simply enjoying my time with her, enjoying the presence of her company, delighting in getting to know her and be with her, I spent most of those early days focused on myself, how I looked, how I acted. All of the pressure was on me. Can you relate to this? This is what's happening with the Christians in Ephesus. This is what's happening with all of us Christians when we lack assurance of where we stand with God. When we don't know where we stand, does not all of the pressure fall on us? All of the focus goes to what we're doing and how well we're doing it. Constantly, constantly, constantly. So how many exhausted Christians in this room need to be told this morning, that's not Christianity. That's not what we profess to believe. That's not good news. The book of 1 John, like most other books in the New Testament, was originally a letter written from the Apostle John to the bewildered Christians in Ephesus. And the whole purpose of this letter was to refocus them back on Jesus, back on the good news, back on the assurance of their salvation. If your book, if your Bible is open to the, to the letter of 1 John, would you look at chapter 5, verse 15 for a moment? That's not our text this morning, but I want to read this to you, and I want your eyes to see it. This is the entire purpose, the entire reason why the apostle John wrote this letter to the Ephesian Christians and to us today. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So as we explore various passages from this book, and over the next four weeks, we are not going to be able to go line by line. We're gonna do kind of a survey of this letter, a highlight reel, if you will. As we explore various passages from this book, here is my aim for this morning and for the next three weeks. It is to draw yours and my attention to four signs, four marks, four, if you will, evidences of a Christian, 
of someone who can be assured that they have eternal life. The first of those marks is believing Jesus. It's believing the good news, which we're going to look at this morning. So if you would, uh, flip back over to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to read that. That's the text that we're going to kind of use as our launch pad this morning. John writes this. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Would you pray with me for a sec? God, we believe this is your word. We believe that it is sufficient and clear and necessary and authoritative and profitable to us this morning. Oh God, would you grant the believers in this room this morning assurance that they are believers who will one day see the face of Christ. And for those in this room who might have thought until now that they are believers, would you show them maybe the true gospel this morning and welcome them into eternal life? God, for those in this room who have never heard the good news, would you, Holy Spirit, invade their hearts and save them? Let us rest assured today that we will see you with unveiled face, not because of our faithfulness, but because of yours. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. So in verses one through four, John is describing this thing called the word of life. And this word of life we see in verse one has pre-existed from the beginning. In other words, this word of life is an eternal entity transcending of of time. But but John continues that this word of life has existed for, that, that this word of life that has existed forever, he continues, this word of life has also appeared, do you see this, in real time to real people in real ways. John himself, that the writer of this letter, is one of the many individuals to have witnessed this word of life, to have heard and seen and looked upon and touched this word of life, which was from the beginning. What John is describing here is the infinite life of God himself taking shape in space and time. If we were to turn our Bibles back a few books to the gospel account of John at the beginning of the New Testament, he describes it like this. Many of you know this by heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He continues, in him, so wait a minute, the word is a him, the word is a person. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the word became flesh. This eternal transcendent word who is light and life became a human being and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, he writes. This word of life being described to us by the apostle John is Jesus, glory, hallelujah. Verse one, Jesus was and is from the beginning. Jesus was and is the eternal life that came to earth, verse two. John is proclaiming Jesus to us this morning that you and I would believe that Jesus is God, but that Jesus also became a man, the Christ, the promised hope of the world. Now, maybe some of you are here wondering, what on earth does this have to do with being assured of salvation? Church, Christian assurance depends entirely on an accurate understanding and belief of Jesus. We can get everything in our lives right. We can have good behavior and good manners and not cuss very often and quit smoking. We can do all of those things. We can outwardly obey God. We can outwardly hate sin. We can even to a degree love others. But if we fail to understand and believe that Jesus is God and man, he is the Christ and the only hope the world has for forgiveness and redemption and eternal life, if we get Jesus wrong, we get everything else wrong. It doesn't matter how good we look on the outside. Like the Ephesians, Ephesian Christians to whom Paul, uh, John is writing, if we get Jesus wrong, there is no foundation of faith left, left to stand on. You've got to hear the seriousness of how intensely serious it is to get Jesus right. That's why John opens his letter which is trying to assure Christians of their salvation, he opens it with basically the doctrine of Christ going into Jesus. And so here's a question that I have for you. Actually, I have, I have three questions for you this morning. The first is, do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe that? Remember, we're talking about the first mark of a Christian who ought to be assured of their salvation. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe the Bible when the Bible says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the universe was created through him and for him, that in Jesus is all the fullness of God? Do you believe that? So here's the thing. Islam doesn't have a problem with Jesus being a prophet. Mormonism doesn't have a problem with Jesus being a good teacher. Oprah, if you watch that kind of trash, doesn't have a problem with Jesus being a model example. Oprah doesn't have a problem with Jesus being a model example, but do you know what Oprah has a problem with? Jesus being God, Lord. All of those groups, 
Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oprah's, they're all happy to embrace God the Father, but they deny that Jesus is God the Son, just like the Ephesian false teachers. This is why John writes in chapter 2, 23 of our text. 1 John chapter 2, 23 no one who denies the Son has the Father. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the Father wrong. Because Jesus is as much God as God the Father and as God the Spirit. So the next time a Muslim or an Orthodox Jew or a Jehovah's Witness claims to worship the same God as you, Remember 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, that any and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. It doesn't matter how much we think of God if we think little of Jesus. Jesus is the epicenter of the Christian universe. Jesus is the name through which we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's because Jesus is the way. It's because Jesus is the truth. It's because Jesus is the life and no one can go to the Father except through Jesus. First John chapter five verses 10 through 12. Will you flip a couple pages over and watch this as I read this to you? 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, that is, the truth in himself. But whoever does not believe God in this has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, verse 11, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son, verse 12. So whoever has the son has life. But whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Do you believe Jesus is God? If you do not, I'm going to try and say this with a tenderness and a sobriety. If you do not believe that, you do not have any claim to assurance of salvation because you do not have salvation. God, help us to believe that Jesus is God. Second question. Do you believe Jesus became fully human and walked the earth? In other words, do you believe that God was incarnate? He came in the person of Jesus. That he was hearable and seeable and touchable just as John describes in our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. 
Do you believe that Jesus ate and drank and slept and cried and laughed and loved? That when it rained outside, he ran undercover? That when it was hot, he hid in the shade? That he actually felt anger when the poor were mistreated? And he felt fear, real fear, when he pondered the cross and what was coming? Early Gnostic teachers claimed that Jesus only appeared to be human. But the Bible insists that Jesus became a human in every respect. Read the book of Hebrews. Think about that. Think about it. God coming in the flesh, God himself, the creator of the Milky Way galaxy, the inventor of color and flavor and music, the sustainer of gravity and climate and oxygen, the keeper of land and sky and sea, he became human with 10 fingers and 10 toes. If we're ever tempted to think that our physical bodies don't matter to God, that he only really cares about our souls, remember the incarnation. God took on a body. He rose again bodily. He ascended to heaven, not as some ethereal orb. He ascended with a body. When he returns, he'll have a body. When we're raised to life, we're going to have bodies. Hallelujah. <laughs> this is taken from the EFCA statement of faith. This is our denomination. Listen to these words. Truly God and truly man Jesus is fully and completely both at the same time. He is not some mixture of humanity and divinity creating a third kind of being. The son of God remained God. He never gave up being God, but he added to his divinity real humanity. As God incarnate, the divine subject made real human experience his own. And since the incarnation, the Son of God will forever be human. Why does any of this matter? <laughs> Why should you and I care that Jesus is fully God and fully man? When we consider what we know from the Bible, here's the reason why. It is God whom we have all sinned against. It is God whom we have all, each of us in our own way, at some time disobeyed. We've turned our backs to him. Generation after generation, Humanity has embraced the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It was Adam and Eve who said this, never mind the God who created us to love him and to live with him and to share life with him. We are gonna live life on our own terms. And from the moment you and I were able to think 
and act by ourselves, we've been thinking and acting for ourselves just like Adam and Eve. I don't know about you, but my life is about me. My life is about my pleasure, my wealth, my happiness, my feelings, my priorities, the idolatry of yours and my self-worship has infected God's world. And if you do not believe me, just turn on the news. We now have professed Christians going into churches and shooting people. Only God has the power to forgive and to save us from our hatred and violence and greed and gossip and sexual immorality. So it's really good news that Jesus is fully God. Are we following the logic here? But no human... No human being is righteous enough to go before God to plead our case because we've all turned aside. We've all made ourselves God's enemies. Every religion on the planet, I don't care where you go, every religion on the planet teaches some form of separation between man and the divine. Every religion on the planet teaches that man must pick himself up and work his way back into divine favor. Every religion in the world teaches that except for one, and it's not a religion. Christianity. God, who has the power to save and forgive, became man. And he came down to us. The first Adam ruined it, so scripture calls him the second Adam. Jesus came to live the perfect sinless life that we did not. Though he was tempted to disobey the Father in every way that we are, he abstained from all of it. Because Jesus is God, he has the power to forgive and save, but because Jesus became man, He is the perfect representative to plead our case before the Father. You can't make this up. And plead our case, Jesus did. It's exactly what he did when he took upon himself all the sins of those who would come to trust in him and with our sins laid upon him, he laid down on a cross that we deserved for our rebellion, for our cosmic treason against the creator God who is holy. The Jews, they thought they were killing Jesus for blasphemy. The Romans, they thought they were killing Jesus as a favor to the Jews. But if any of these guys had just read their Bibles, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came to earth, tells us that on the cross, Jesus was offering his life as a substitute for sinners like us. And now, the punishment 
that you and I deserved for our sin and rebellion has been absorbed by the God-man, Christ Jesus. Do you believe, question number three, Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe he is your only hope for forgiveness and eternal life? Do you believe it to the extent that your life is oriented around this truth? I have some really good news. If you do, if you believe these things, you are no longer God's enemy. You are no longer under his wrath. You are at peace with him. Your debt has been demolished. Your sins washed away. There is no more market, none more condemnation for you. The guesswork is over. You needn't spend your time like I did in the early years of my relationship with my soon-to-be wife at the time. I was always worried, always wondering where I stood. You and I in Jesus never have to wonder and we never have to worry. We've been accepted and our spot is eternally secure in heaven. It cannot go away. We should have like a party for goodness sakes. This is what we do every Sunday. When someone asks you, if you know that you are going to heaven, you should say, believer, yes, I am absolutely certain. Because that's not arrogance, that is assurance because it's not based on your behavioral performance, but on the perfect substitutionary performance of Jesus. It's not arrogant to say, I know that I know that I know that I am going to glory because Jesus paid my way. All of my hope is on him. All of my chips are on that side of the table. Can we equate Jesus to gambling for just a second, as inappropriate as that was? That wasn't written here. Strike that from the record. <laughs> if you truly believe this, this is the first mark of a genuine Christian who ought to be absolutely unequivocally sure that he or she is saved. Now from here, will you grow in holiness? Will you grow in righteous works? Will you grow in obedience to God? Yes. Yes, you will. We're going to look at that next week. Uh, the second mark of, of, a, of a Christian. Will you grow in turning from your sin? Yes. Will you grow in, in, in Christ-like love for, for others? Yes. These are the other three of the four marks that John gives us of true Christianity, but it all starts with believing that Jesus is God. He is a man. He is the Christ and him alone. In him alone do we have salvation. That's where it all starts. If you would, really quickly, as I prepare to close, would you flip back over to chapter five? I told you this was gonna be kind of a highlight reel of the book of John. It's gonna be a little bit like this. Would you pick, uh, flip to, to chapter five, verse one? Look at this. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You know what that means? That means that you and I, we don't get to walk out of here in all of our chest puffery, that we don't get to turn belief into a work, right? Well, I believed in God and therefore he, he, no, right here, it plainly and clearly says, as does all of scripture emphatically, that you weren't, you didn't bore, bear, bear, born yourself. I don't know what the tense is. You were born, you're born of God. This was a supernatural thing that God has done in you. Don't believe John here. Flip to John chapter one. We read it during our liturgy. All of those who believe in Jesus, who believe in his name, they come to him. God, Jesus gives them the right to become sons of daughters, not because of their free will, not because of the lineage that they were born into, but because of God. What a wonderful, miraculous gift of God's grace that even those who weren't seeking to be saved by Jesus, he saves. So if you're here and you're thinking to yourself, well, I, I don't know if I believe God, that Jesus is God. I, I don't know. I'm struggling. I think I believe, but I, I'm not entirely sure. Belief isn't something that you and I can conjure up. It's not something that we whip ourselves into just more faith. Faith is a gift. Scripture is clear. So here is the encouragement I have for you. Would you pray like the man in Mark chapter, is it chapter 9 or chapter 7? He says this, I believe, I, th I think I believe, but help my unbelief. I'm going to make a really bold promise to you. If you are here with even a shred of curiosity, if you're here a skeptic, totally doubting, I don't know about this whole Jesus stuff, but if you have the audacity to even pray this, Jesus, I don't know about you. I'm not sure. If you're real, if this is all real, would you convince my heart of it? If you prayed that with even a shred of earnest, you'll be a Christian before you know it. He will reveal himself to you. No person will enter condemnation at the end of time and look out of Hades and, and, and outside and say, oh, I wanted to believe in Jesus, but, but he didn't give me belief. No person will ever be able to say that. Not one. Because if any heart in this room with even a shred of earnest says, Jesus, I want to know that you're real. Reveal yourself to me if you are you will be saved, I promise you. I promise you. Because genuine belief is not something we conjure up. It is a gift. It is a gift. Maybe now as I really close, maybe you're wondering what's up with the kid with the kite. <laughs> My wife asked me, what's up with the kid with the kite? <laughs> and this is what here, I'll read a quote to you. Reinhold Niebuhr writes this. All those who live with any degree of serenity live by some assurance of grace. I want to be this kid in this storybook looking thing. I just imagine that that dude right there, he knows that he knows that he knows where he stands with Jesus. And so maybe he had a bad morning that morning. Maybe he fell into temptation, but Jesus is in his heart. So let's go fly a kite, right? 
It's not the flying of the kite that's the important part. It's the, it's the with childlike joy. It's the I am in and I can't lose my spot and I know where I stand with God because I know where I stand with Jesus. He's given me faith in my heart. I am alive. I'm never gonna be condemned. And so goodness gracious world, bring on your worst because even on my worst day, it is not even compared to the glory that will be revealed to me when Jesus returns, right? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I love you. (laughs) And I know that my brothers and sisters do too. Father, we are so thankful for the gift of Jesus. We're thankful, God, that we have been born of God. If it were up to me, if it were up to my intellect, my conjuring up of belief, my own free will, I would still be muddling in the crap that I muddled in for years. But because of Jesus, because of your fatherly plan of redemption, God the Father, because of Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross, because of God the Holy Spirit's gracious regeneration of my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here, we have come to know where we stand with you. And nothing and no one can take that away. And if we don't believe that, send us to Romans chapter eight. Thank you, Thank you, thank you. I pray from the bottom of my heart that my brothers and sisters here today who truly have tasted and seen, God, that our day would be filled with kite flying type activities, that we would loosen up, that we would recognize we are not performing, we have been accepted where we stand on the basis of my Christ. Give us belief Help us in our unbelief, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.